0: Life Books recently published an updated version of their book, 100 People Who Changed the World. And there are some interesting people in this book. They fall into four categories. Religious figures and philosophers, leaders inventors, and cultural icons, and I want to test your skills in discerning world changers. So we're going to put up four people on the screen. This book, Life Books, put this in the category. They gave three of these people rankings in the top 100. One of them didn't. I made it up and threw it in there, and you've got to determine which one it is. So instead of just yelling that out, I want you just to share it with somebody next to you, and then I'll reveal the answer. We'll do this two different times, all right? We'll start with cultural icons, which person... Of these four, did they not include who does not belong? Here are your options. William Shakespeare, Michael Jordan, the Beatles, or P.T. Barnum? Who did they pass on? Share it with your neighbor. The answer is Michael Jordan. They passed on MJ. Can you believe that? Mr. Traveling Circus, P.T. Barnum, beat out MJ. Okay, in the category of inventors, which person did they not include? Here are your options. Johann Gutenberg, Isaac Newton, Benjamin Franklin, or Steve Jobs? Share with the person next to you. The answer is Benjamin Franklin. Left out of the list. The man invented the lightning rod, bifocal glasses, a stove. He had something to do with a little document in 1776. Not good enough, Ben. You get left out of the list. This would be a really difficult job, wouldn't it, to determine who should be in a list of 100 people who changed the world? There's one really fascinating guy. His name's Norman Borlaug. This guy saved hundreds of millions of lives, and he did it by developing high-yield, disease-resistant wheat varieties. These discoveries were used in the famine-plagued third world to majorly increase crop production. That's pretty amazing. Uh, One person who's left off the list, and you're probably going to be shocked by this, Jim Nicodem. (laughs) Crazy, right? Uh, One person who was a big surprise to me, the first person, the first person named in this book is Abraham, the guy that we find in the opening pages of the Bible, in the book of Genesis. Now, he must be pretty important to have made it to this, this 100 people who changed the world, but the question is, Why? Uh, according to this team of people who made the decision, he's so important because he introduced monotheism to the world. Uh, one God over many gods. According to the Bible, Abraham is such a big deal because of the God in whom he believed. God is the one who changed the world as Abraham demonstrated faith. Now This is the final week of our series, In the Beginning. We've read the opening chapters of the Bible, and we've become acquainted with creation, fall, judgment, and nations. And this week, we're moving to the initial stages of God's redemption as we focus on the story of Abraham. This guy fills up 14 chapters in Genesis, which tips us off to the fact that we can't look at everything there is to say about him and the fact that he's obviously very important in the Bible. So, we're going to cover God's initial interactions with Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 9. Scholars say that these nine verses are the centerpiece of the book of Genesis and the source of a, really lo- a bunch of important passages in the New Testament. So Paul talks about Abraham predominantly in-, in Galatians and Romans. In the book of James we see mention of Abraham. In Hebrews we see mention of Abraham. Yeah, Hebrews holds up faith as the banner over Abraham's entire life. Now listen to a couple of verses from Hebrews chapter 11. There are eight verses devoted to Abraham's story. Let me give you just a little bit of a flavor. The author says, By faith, Abraham, when he was called to go to a place he later received as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. By faith, he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. By faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. By faith. Abraham received God's grace by faith. He lived by faith, and his faith is going to be the focus of our study today. Specifically, we're going to explore three aspects of the faith of Abraham in this story, which is also God's story of deliverance and redemption. So turn in your Bible, if you have one, to Genesis chapter 12, or you can follow along on the screen, and you can take out your weekly welcome so you can jot some notes down in the outline provided there. I want to read the entirety of these verses to us, Genesis 12, 1-9, to to get us acquainted with the story, so follow along as I read. The Lord had said to Abram, leave your country, your people, and your father's household and go to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you I will curse and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So Abram left, as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. He took his wife Sarai, his nephew Lot, all the possessions they'd accumulated, and the people they'd acquired in Haran, and they set out for the land of Canaan, and they arrived there. Abram traveled through the land as far as the site of the great tree of Morah at Shechem. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he went on toward the hills east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and I on the east. There he built an altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord. Then Abram set out and continued toward the Negev. Three aspects of faith. Here's number one. Faith's object, God's word. Faith's object is God's word. The pattern that we have observed as we've read the first 11 chapters of Genesis kind of creates some expectations about how things will continue in God's world. Uh, We've seen a specific pattern of human sin followed by God's judgment. So Adam and Eve sinned, they rebelled against God, and God judges them by expelling them from the garden. Cain sins by killing his brother Abel, and God sets him to wander about the earth. He judges him for his sin. In Noah's time, human sin reaches a high point and God judges them with the flood. Last week we saw in the Tower of Babel that that arrogance was raising up and God judged them by scattering them all over the earth. And so we get to Genesis chapter 12 and we might be expecting another cataclysmic event of God for him to sort of hit the reset button. And in some sense that is and isn't what we get. Pastor Jim took us from Genesis chapter 11 to Matthew 28 and on last week with a special emphasis on the nation. But you might have been wondering, you know, what happens in the 945 chapters I counted in between? how, How do we get from here to there? Well, similar to God's initial creation in Genesis 1 and God's recreation after the flood, we see a creation here in Genesis chapter 11. In that sense, this is a cataclysmic act. But at the same time, it isn't one because God's act is right in line with what's come before. You might remember God's promise in Genesis 3.15 that he would do something about human rebellion through Eve's offspring. And we can actually trace the line from Adam to his son Seth, from Seth to Noah, from Noah to Shem, and from Shem to this guy Abraham. God's creation here is the creation of a people through whom redemption would come slowly but surely all the way from Abraham to Jesus. And it's worth pausing here to make a really important point. I don't say all of this by way of review only or by way of preparing us for what's to come. It does that, but it does something else as well. Some people want to argue as they read the opening chapters of Genesis that God is sort of stepping back to see what happens in his creation and he's kind of flummoxed by the whole thing. He's sort of stepping back to figure out what he's going to do and so he initiates plan A, uh, expulsion from the garden, and that doesn't seem to work. And so then he initiates plan B, flood, and that doesn't seem to work, and so on it goes. But that's not the case. God has one Plan, plan A, it's redemption. And it's been slowly marching forward from his first speech in Genesis 1 to his speech here in Genesis 12 to Jesus himself. The God of creation and redemption has one plan, plan A, and that provides some massive context for all of the stuff even that we're facing in our lives here today. God's working this thing through. And I love the way that the story of Genesis unfolds to make that point. You come to the end of Genesis 1-11 through 11 and you're just wondering, how is this all going to be resolved? The whole thing is all messed up. God, what's going to happen? And then Genesis 12:1 happens. Uh, look again at verse 1 of Genesis chapter 12. The Lord had said to Abram, leave your country, your people, your father's household and go to the land I will show you. See, God does something incredible here. And I want to note several of those things. But before I do, let me clear up one bit of possible confusion. I keep calling this guy Abraham, and every time he pops up in the story, his name is Abram. It might be a little bit confusing. Abram means exalted father, while Abraham means father of many nations. In just a couple of chapters, God renames Abram. He names him Abraham because that's signifying his place in the story of redemption. He's going to have this massive big nation. And so I'm going to call him Abraham throughout because that's how we know him best. All right, so back to the text. Here are a couple of things that I want to highlight. Notice first... There's this phrase, the Lord had said. God speaks in the midst of the chaos created by Babel. He hasn't spoken in several chapters, but he speaks here to humanity. And this is truly a creation scene similar to Genesis chapter one. God's speech goes out into the midst of the chaos to initiate the next stage of redemption. And notice that this speech of God is extremely specific. It's very personal. It goes to a person named Abraham. The Lord had said to Abram, to Abraham. The story slows down here. It zooms in on this one man and his family. And the rest of the Bible is going to be the story of this man and his family. The million-dollar question we ask as we are introduced to Abraham is, well, God, why this guy? Why, Why Abraham? A simple answer to that is just that we don't know and it really doesn't matter. God could have chosen anybody to do this task, but he chose this ordinary guy named Abraham. And the point isn't Abraham, the point is God's call, God's word to bring Abraham forth. To call to him personally and specifically. God says you and your multiple times in this first verse because he's singling out this one guy, this intimate knowledge that God has of this one guy who he's going to use to do these amazing things. So from early on in the pages of Scripture, we get let in on a little component, a a big thing in God's way of working is that he uses ordinary people to do extraordinary things. Let, Let that sink in for a moment. God uses ordinary people like me and like you to do extraordinary things. One of my favorite preachers is a guy named Charles Haddon Spurgeon. He lived in the 19th century in England. And in his autobiography, he tells the story of coming to faith in Jesus. He goes out one morning to go to church. It's a Sunday morning, and he's walking on his way, and the snow is coming down. It's this nasty snowstorm. He can't get very far, so he's not going to get to the church that he was planning to go to, but he just, he just kind of pops into the next one he can find. And, and the snowstorm was so bad that the pastor wasn't able to make it either. And so some other guy stands up and says, you know what, I'll, I'll share a thought for this 40 or so people. And this is Spurgeon's words at this point. He says, at last a very thin-looking man, a shoemaker, a tailor, something of that sort, went up into the pulpit to preach. Now, it's well that preachers should be instructed, but this man was really stupid. That's fantastic. He was obliged to stick to his text for the simple reason that he had little else to say. He does stick to his text. He he focuses on this passage of Scripture and very simply but effectively, he talks about the fact that every single person has to look away from themselves, not to themselves for salvation, but to Jesus. And as he's talking about this, he singles out Spurgeon in the crowd by pointing at him and saying he looks miserable. Now Spurgeon's in his teens at this point, so he's feeling very awkward and uncomfortable, but he's also thinking, I trudged here in the snow, of course I look miserable. But the guy goes on to say, you're going to be miserable in your sin until you look to Jesus. Spurgeon's sitting in that moment thinking, he's right, I'm going to be miserable. And so right then and there, he looks to Jesus and experiences salvation. God did amazing things through the life of Charles Haddon Spurgeon. This, this guy led thousands of people to Christ in England. An ordinary guy, Charles Spurgeon, was introduced to Jesus through an ordinary guy, an unnamed country bumpkin. Just an ordinary dude who led Spurgeon to Jesus. God uses ordinary people to do extraordinary things. He calls Abraham a normal dude living in the city of Ur. Er, he calls him to have faith in his word. And then through this one man, God does amazing things. He calls ordinary people to do extraordinary things. The Apostle Paul says it this way to a group of Christians in Corinth. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, he says, Brothers, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards, not many of you were influential, not many were of noble birth, but God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. I'm not wise by human standards, I'm not influential, I'm not of any noble birth, but thankfully by God's grace, he uses ordinary people to do extraordinary things. You know, as I look at all of you, you're ordinary people. But God could do some extraordinary things through our church if we were to invest in God's work of redemption. Ordinary people raising families and working jobs and sharing Christ with people in our community and engaging in serving the poor, leading community groups, serving at a special event. Whatever it is, ordinary people, God uses them to do extraordinary things. What stuff is he calling us to do that would make him extraordinary? That's what he did with Abraham. Look Look back one more time at this verse. I want to note one more thing that builds on what we've just seen. God speaks about the future, and because God is speaking about it, you can count on it coming to fruition. The I will at the end of verse 1 foreshadows what's coming in these promises in verses 2 and 3, but it's worth noting here that everything that happens, everything that happens in Abraham's life is dependent upon God. And so here's the bottom line. We can count on God to come through on his promises because he always does every single time. God comes through on his promises. He does what he says he's going to do. You can bank on it. You can trust in God's word, which is the object of faith because it launched redemption right here and it accomplished redemption ultimately in Jesus. Faith's object is God's sure word, his promise, his call. That's number one. Here's number two. Faith result, God's blessing. Follow along as I read the next two verses of Genesis chapter 12, verses 2 and 3. God says, I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. I was working out a bunch of weeks ago and I was watching ESPN and they were airing this special show that was showing all of the best sports celebrations gone wrong. This was really funny. I was literally laughing so hard that I was having a tough time breathing on the elliptical and everyone's looking at me to see if I'm like okay, if they need to step in and help me in some way. I'm laughing my head off because clip after clip after clip show these amazing reversals. People celebrating, boasting, excited, turned into pain and shame like that. And as I'm watching this, and this is total speculation, I'm thinking, man, God must be stepping in to judge them. Like God is stepping in to do this to them in this moment because people who make much of themselves end up like these guys. So there are all these different different uh, versions of this in different sports, but one from soccer, this guy lines up for his penalty kick and he smacks the ball and the goalkeeper stops it, but prematurely he stands up to make much of himself, looking at the crowd, patting his chest, making a big deal about himself, and unbeknownst to him, you see where this is going, backspin on the ball right across the line. What a chump. I'm declaring my divine status. I'm amazing. And God just like, boop, right into the stinking goal. I love that. God turns this kind of stuff on its head all the time. He reverses things. And right here in these verses, we see these kinds of reversals. And notice two of them specifically, starting with this phrase, I will make your name great, in the second half of verse 2. This might sound familiar to you because we heard something like this in the previous chapter. When they set out on their construction project, building the Tower of Babel, these people wanted to make a name for themselves. And just like Mr. Pat Myself on the chess goalkeeper, God turns the whole thing around. He turns the game on them and he reverses it. And in this case, he's intentionally going to pick out this one guy and I'm going to make your name great because I'm going to get involved. It's a reversal. Here's another reversal. This is at the heart of the promises. It concerns the word bless. God is going to bless Abraham. Abraham's going to be a blessing. God's going to be blessing the people who bless Abraham. And finally, God is going to bless the nations through Abraham. Bless, 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 bless. Five times. What's with all this over-the-top blessing? It's a reversal. If you had to guess, how many times is the word curse used in Genesis 1-11? through 11? Five times. God is working a big reversal. All of this stuff transpiring in Genesis 1 through 11 flipped on its head now because of Abraham and what God's going to do through him. This blessing language echoes what we see God give to Adam and Eve in the first place, in the first, the first interaction in the garden. He blessed them and said, multiply and fill the earth. And now God is generously passing on this mission of redemption to Abraham. And it's quite the blessing. There there are four different things noted here. A nation, a reputation, protection, and that God's going to bless the nations. God, God promises him a people, a nation. And this is the first thing, and this is the thing that makes all of the other ones possible. But interestingly, from the start, this is kind of called into question. If we read Genesis 11 closely, we notice right near the end in Genesis 11, verse 30, Something very interesting about Abraham's wife that calls into question the nation that God is saying he's going to bring about. We learn that Sarai, his wife, was childless because she was not able to conceive. Abraham's wife can't have children, and God is promising him a nation. From the start, we recognize that this isn't going to be just any normal nation. It's not starting out in a normal way because God is in charge. The second thing God promises, we've seen this already, is that Abraham's going to have a reputation. His name is going to be great. And third, God said he's going to protect him. This would come in handy if you were trekking all across the world following God's lead with your family and all of your stuff. You want protection. And finally, God promises to bless the nations through Abraham, all peoples of the earth. This singular nation is going to have a great reputation. It's going to be protected by God. And it will be used to bring blessing to the nations, plural, God's blessing of salvation. An individual blessed by God brings universal blessing to the whole world. The scope of God's blessing is breathtaking. And I love the thing that we noted in the last point is that God will see that this happens. Five times in these verses, he will carry this thing through. His blessing is breathtaking. My wife had a roommate in college who had a go-to line that she would use all the time with Rachel. Rachel would be stressing about something related to to school or family or boy drama or friend stuff or whatever. And so uh, Tiffany, her roommate, would look at her and say, Rachel, you're too blessed to be stressed. Isn't that great? Rachel and I have said it a million times to each other. We'll be struggling through something stressful, something going on. We're questioning what God's up to. And then we hear Tiff's voice in the back of our head, you're too blessed to be stressed. It doesn't make anything go away. It doesn't erase the problems, but it puts them into perspective. I don't know if you feel this, but the blessing of God has been pouring forth into our world and into our lives, starting right here with Abraham. God is generous and gracious, and he overflows blessing into our world and into our lives. And it begins full force right here in Genesis chapter 12. And I say full force really intentionally because there are nineteen, excuse me, 918 chapters, again I counted, between the promises to Abraham and the fulfillment in Jesus, and God's blessing just marches on and on and on with incredible focus. For centuries, Christians have described this outworking of God's plan of redemption, of salvation. We've called it redemption history. From Abraham to Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, God works out a single plan of redemption. He rescues, he delivers, he redeems people from sin and death, and God's I will, in these verses, carries it on to its conclusion. Now, I want to try to summarize as briefly as I can some of the rich and long history as it unfolds through Abraham all the way to Jesus. And I want to do it by summarizing four big scenes. All of them take place as God makes a covenant, makes another promise to the people of Israel, culminating then in Jesus. And so the first one starts right here in Genesis 12. This is called the Abrahamic Covenant. Scene one, the Abrahamic Covenant. This is what we've been looking at for the past couple of minutes. These promises are reiterated to Abraham a few more times in the chapters that follow, most notably in Genesis 15 and 17. God promises him a place, the land of Israel, a people, the nation of Israel, and a purpose. They will be a light to the nations. Scene 2, the Mosaic Covenant. You fast forward several hundred years and we find God's promise of a people fulfilled, but not that of the land. There are lots and lots of descendants of Abraham, but they're living in the land of Egypt as slaves. And God delivers them from the land of Egypt. He makes a covenant with them at Mount Sinai, and he leads them to the promised land by Moses. The essence of this covenant is, you will be my people, and I will be your God. You will be my people, a set-apart, a unique people that will bring about this redemption. Scene 3, the Davidic Covenant. This is one of the high points in Israel's history, the kingship of David. But it eventually devolves into the lowest point of Israel's history, kings and kingdoms failing, and eventually they go to exile. But before these sad events transpire, God further clarified that this blessing of his is going to take shape in an everlasting dynasty. Israel's throne would be established by a king like David from David's line and it would bring rest to the people of Israel in his kingdom that would last forever. And fourth, the new covenant. This is the fourth scene. In fulfillment of the prophecy of Jeremiah and the whole of the Old Testament, including the previous three covenants, Jesus arrives on the scene in the first verse of Matthew chapter 1. Matthew writes a record of the genealogy of Jesus, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Coincidence? I think not. God has been moving this thing forward step by step through these people and these covenants and his promise to make it good in Jesus. In this new covenant, the promises to Abraham and Israel and David are fulfilled in Jesus. And on the night that Jesus is betrayed, he has a Passover meal. A Passover which remembers back to when God took them out of Egypt, the exodus, God's great act of redemption in the Old Testament. Jesus takes bread, he takes cup, Signaling that his death is coming tomorrow. It's coming very shortly. And this, he signals to his disciples, will be God's greatest act of redemption, ushering in the new covenant, forgiveness of sins, and new hearts for obedience to God. God comes through on that promise in Jesus. He starts out with Abraham, a guy who struggles with sin. It develops into a nation that struggles with sin. And it finally culminates in Jesus who doesn't struggle with sin. The seed, to use the language of Genesis 3.15, the seed of Eve, defeats sin and death at the cross. And offers forgiveness of sins and new life to those who put their faith in him. This is the blessing of salvation that comes to all people, every nation, an opportunity to be reconciled to the one God. Are you included? God set out to rescue lost humanity, sinful humanity, and he accomplished it in Jesus the Redeemer. We've got to recognize our sin. We've got to confess our sin to him and receive forgiveness and redemption from Jesus. We need to put our hope, our trust, our faith in Jesus. For some of you, that needs to happen today because God extends an invitation into Abraham's history-long and worldwide family in Jesus. Surrender to Jesus. Allow him to come clean up the mess of sin in your life. No one, no one is automatically redeemed by Jesus. We have to trust him. We have to look to him. Look to Jesus today. Faith's result is God's blessing in Jesus. Faith's object is God's sure word, his promise, which does come true. Finally, number three, faith's action, Abraham's obedience. How many of you have ever seen the musical or the movie Fiddler on the Roof? Okay, there's a character in this movie. I saw the movie version. There's a character in the movie named Model And he wants to marry this guy's daughter, but he can't work up the courage to actually ask. Everything's against him being able to marry her. Well, eventually he's able to do it, and to his surprise and to the audience's surprise, because we know what's going on in this father's head, the guy says, yes, you can. The next scene, Model and his bride-to-be are running through a field, dancing and singing. And his song is really, really amazing. He talks about the miracle that God has worked to make him man enough to go talk to that man and ask for her hand in marriage, but to bring them together. And what I find really interesting about the entirety of this song is that Muddle understands God's miracle in that moment to be a continuation of God's miracles in the Bible. This is what I mean. In the song he sings about Daniel and the lion's den, Jericho, the Exodus, David and Goliath, and God's provision for Israel in the wilderness. He recounts all of those things, and then over and over he says, wonder of wonders, miracle of miracles. The theme of his song, their God, those characters, those people, their God is my God too. The Apostle Paul says the same thing about Father Abraham. Abraham is, according to Paul, the father of all of those who have faith in the one true God, most fully known in Jesus. Abraham's God is our God, too, if we have faith in Jesus. As the story of Genesis 12 unfolds, we've heard God speak, and we've seen where it ends up. We've kind of gone from here way fast forward over to here to Jesus, but we've kind of left Abraham in the background. Well, we know that God keeps his promise because it's fulfilled in Jesus, but what does Abraham do? God says, leave, and Abraham left. Genesis 12, verses 4 through 9. So Abram left as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. He took his wife Sarai, his nephew Lot, all the possessions they'd accumulated, and the people they'd acquired in Haran, and they set out for the land of Canaan, and they arrived there. Abram traveled through the land as far as the site of the great tree of Morah at Shechem. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he went on toward the hills east of Bethel and pitched his tent, with Bethel on the west and I on the east. There he built an altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord. Then Abram set out and continued toward the Negev. Now, although we don't see the word faith in these verses, Abraham's faith is the focus. You can see it written all over the place in the first half of verse 4. So Abram left as the Lord told him. Abraham's faith is synonymous with costly obedience. The two go hand in hand. They cannot be separated. God speaks, and out of faith, Abraham obeys. And this could not have been a very simple thing for him. This was costly obedience, costly faith. Because his faith meant that he had to abandon everything that he was familiar with. He turned his back on his extended family, He turned his back on the city that he'd settled in, the city that he'd he'd known. He just leaves all of that, and he does it to go to a place that God will show him. Not very clear, kind of uncertain. Where is God leading me? Abraham didn't know. This was costly obedience. This faith cost him something. True faith always demands a ruthless abandonment of the past. True faith always demands a ruthless abandonment abandonment of the past. Abraham didn't know where he was going, just like most of us don't know what's around the corner. We don't know what's coming up in these next years. Abraham went 800 miles on foot not knowing where he was going, and he did it because God knew where he was going. God knew where he was taking him. His faith was a radical abandonment of everything previous. His faith led him to worship from Shechem all the way in the north to the Negev in the far south Abraham is leaving altars of sacrifice all over the place he's worshiping God as he goes this also cost him something he was previously an idol worshipper with his family and he had to turn his back on all of those gods I'm not going to worship the idols anymore because there's one true God he speaks and he leads and I will worship him his faith persevered through all sorts of obstacles And over a long period of time, there's famine in the land when he arrives. The then inhabitants, the Canaanites, are actually there. God, I thought this was going to be my land. He persevered through the faltering of his sin. He persevered as he waited for 25 long years for God to miraculously provide that baby that would get this nation going. That baby was born to a previously barren womb. That took great faith to believe God. Abraham started with faith in God, and he lived his entire life of costly obedience by faith in God. And God, God, came through on every promise, especially as they culminated in Jesus. Abraham's action, his faith, led him to costly obedience. That's what it's going to mean, faith, action. Is Abraham's obedience. It's costly obedience. Faith's object is God's word, though. It's a sure word. His promise is always kept. And faith results in God's blessing. Blessing of salvation in Jesus. Well, we have covered a ton of stuff over the course of this series in the beginning. This opening chapters of Genesis. From creation to fall to judgments to nations to redemption. We've seen one central character working all things for God. His own glory and for our good. That's God. And so to close this series, I thought it'd be fitting to say this with the Apostle Paul. He writes, For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him, to him be the glory forever. God is amazing. Yeah, I want to, good, thank you. I want to hand things over to our campus pastors at this time. And I want to invite you here to stand with me as we close in prayer together, and I'll remind you that the prayer team members are assembled on the sides. Pray with them, pray with your family, friends, somebody you don't even know if you need prayer to continue to persevere in faith through something or to respond to Jesus, to get to know him, to be included in this family. Let's pray together. Father, I'm so thankful for the scriptures. I'm so thankful that as we read them, we can be encouraged and we can experience fresh endurance and we can have hope in Jesus who is our ultimate hope. And I'm so thankful that you would, you would communicate with us and make known to us who you are and to do so ultimately in Jesus that we could come to know you, to be reconciled to you, to, to turn over the effects of death and sin in our lives. God, thank you for your grace and mercy in Jesus. I pray you draw us more and more to him as we continue to reflect on your word and continue to follow after him. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.